great joy to be back in Claygate. Always enjoy coming to see you all. Always enjoy it when I get fed at night as well. Wonderful food. And they're great to meet old friends and get to know some new people as well. I was listening to the radio driving around on my travels this week. And a somewhat macabre phone-in. And I thought, is this really a way to start a sermon? But but I thought this morning, I thought, no, I will do this. So people were invited to phone in. I think it was a Radio 2 phone-in. Invited to phone in and share with the audience their experiences of being what they call a near-death experience. A time where if it had something else had just happened, they would have died. For example, you're just about to step into the curb and you suddenly notice the double-decker bus. And you thought, if I'd have gone forward one second earlier, the bus would have got me. Or or perhaps like, like the man working in our kitchen last week who drilled through the wall and missed a live cable by a millimetre. And he freaked out. He said, oh, if I'd just have been a little bit to the right, that was the end. Or my experience when Sarah was pregnant with Anna and I was climbing in Glencoe in, in April without crampons and without a good ice axe. And I got to the top of Bidium Nambian. I had to go down a steep hill and slipped and started to go faster and faster down the cliff towards an edge and just managed to hang on by my fingertips. For several days, I'd wake up in the middle of the night in a panic. How close I was to going over the edge. And according to this phone-in, almost everybody in their lifetime has an experience like that. Where, if not for the grace of God, we might say, the end was there. And when you've been through something like that, the adrenaline rush that you've got leaves this dry, metallic taste in your mouth and your heart's beating fast. And you may have a very mild form of post-traumatic stress. But whatever that experience was, whatever that initial reaction, as we think about it, we are overwhelmed with a sense of relief and a sense of thankfulness at God's protection. In the history of Israel that we studied in two blocks in Exodus, now coming to the second part, you've got to say that the crossing of the Red Sea was a pretty traumatic experience for the people of Israel. I mean, there they were, just a few weeks previous to this reading, trapped between an irate Egyptian army pursuing them to slaughter them completely and an impassable obstacle, the Red Sea. And if you look back to verse uh, 16 of chapter 14, you see God saying to Moses, Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. And Moses does so with his staff, the staff of God. And the waters part and Israel cross and escape. And then God tells Moses to stretch his hand out again and the waters completely destroy the Egyptian army. Huge celebrations. Great thankfulness. Miriam's famous song recorded there in Exodus for us. Huge rejoicing. And then very quickly after that, just three days later, in chapter 15, we read of the people of Israel Grumbling, 
complaining to Moses, what are we going to drink? Have you brought us into the desert to die? And a few weeks later, in chapter 16 and verse 2, in the desert, the whole community grumbles against Moses and Aaron. And they complain, and they deceive themselves, and they tell lies to themselves about life in Egypt. If only we died in Egypt. In Egypt, we sat around pots of meat, and we had all the food that we wanted. Pardon? You were slaves in Egypt. Meat? You'd be lucky to see meat. Melons? You'd be lucky to see melons. You were slaves in Egypt. But they deceive themselves and they complain and say, why have you done this, Moses? Why has God brought us here in this situation to die? And God supplies manna from heaven. And God supplies water from the rock. With Moses being told to take his staff of God and strike the rock Water would emerge and 600,000 men and their families would be provided with water, no mean feet in a desert, and food to eat. And then in this passage today, again we see in early part of chapter 17, complaints and grumbles. And then a new threat, the sworn enemy of Israel, Amalek, a descendant of Esau, who was Jacob's brother, sworn to the destruction of these people. Amalek comes. And we have to remember, Amalek, a trained, armed, physically fit, strong opponent against a ragtag, a ragtag of, of, of freed slaves who've had a lifetime of bad nourishment, who've just gone through a traumatic experience, who find themselves in the wilderness. And here comes Amalek to destroy them. Again and again and again, the question comes to God's people, to Israel, that's recorded for you in verse 7 of chapter 17. Is the Lord among us or not? Is the Lord among us or not? Has God brought us out of Egypt to kill us in the wilderness? How can God provide for all of us in the desert? How could he provide food? How could he provide protection? The odds are stacked against us. It's impossible for God to save me here. Why did God do this? God hears that a lot from Israel throughout the book of Exodus, and you read it also in Numbers and in Deuteronomy. Why did God do this? Why did God bring me here? God can't provide for me here. God can't take care of me here. Complaints and grumbles. And you know, when I was thinking about this, God said to me, how often do I hear that from you? How often does God hear that from us? Why have you let this happen? Why have you brought me here? You can't provide here. How am I going to survive this? A complaint. A grumble. Based on doubt that God will really take care. Is the Lord really amongst us? Can God really care for me in this situation? Does God really care about me when he lets this happen to me? Who has not asked that question? Why did God let it happen? How can God help me here? This short passage that we read this morning addresses this fundamental question. 
yes, of complaining and grumbling, but really the root of that is doubt that God is faithful. Doubt that God cares. Doubt that God can provide, that God can protect. Does God protect and preserve his people? What's your response when an enemy attacks you? When a situation arises in your life? When a crisis comes? What's your response when the phone rings in the middle of the night and you know it's not going to be good news? What's your response when the bills come in and there's no money in the bank to pay them? What's your response when the the result comes back from the doctors and the test is positive? What's your response when crisis comes? What's your response as a parent when things go bad for your children? What's your response? Is it a response of faith? Is it a response of doubt? Of fear? Of panic? This passage is for all of us. This passage is for all of us. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians verse 10 that these things happened to them and were written down as a warnings, as warnings for us. This is why we read it. Because it was written down to help us, to warn us, to encourage us, to teach us. So when you're tempted to doubt God, what should you do? What should you do when that fear and that panic comes upon you? Because who hasn't experienced that? The Bible tells you to do one very simple thing that's very difficult. Remember. The Bible tells you to remember. Remember what God has done. Yes, in the past. Yes, in our lives. Remember all that God has promised you. Remember how he has come through for you as indeed he did for them. We are to remember his faithfulness. That's why he puts us in community. We should be sharing stories to each other of how God has met your need, how God has delivered in your past, so that from that experience we're strengthened in the present. Each victory teaches us some other to win, an old hymn says. When you learn that God is faithful in today's circumstance, it should strengthen you to face tomorrow's. And so often in my own life, I remember that, but then tomorrow the phone will ring or something will come into the inbox or some crisis will happen and I'll panic all over again. I want to remember the faithfulness of God. In this passage, we learn how God saved Israel, how God delivered Israel, this weak, downtrodden, malnourished, ragtaggled bunch of people facing the might of Amalek. And we can learn from this some lessons how to trust him to provide us with salvation and deliverance when we face enemies. There's a clue in the passage. If you were to look at uh, verse 8 of chapter 17, there's a very early clue in this passage in the way in which it's constructed that shows you that this is the focus. And the clue is the name of Joshua. Joshua is introduced here out of the blue, as it were. There's no background to this Joshua. I mean, Joshua's a quite a key figure. And when this was written, everyone knew who Joshua was. But 
in order, in the way in which the, the passage is constructed, Joshua's dropped in there without any introduction. Why, why would that be? Why would he name Joshua out of the blue like that? One of the reasons is the meaning of the name Joshua. Joshua, the name, means God is salvation. Yahweh is salvation. And here in the passage, Moses says to Joshua, Moses says to God is salvation, go and fight. And you know straight away reading it, God is salvation. It's a reminder in the very name of the general, God is salvation. But how does God do it? How does God save? In verse 9, Moses says to God is salvation, choose some of our men and go out and fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow, I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. And that's what happens. And when he holds the staff up, Israel prevails. And when he gets tired and his arms drop, Amalek prevails. Why? What is going on there? Is it simply that Moses is lifting up a totemic representation of the power of God? And as everyone sees the staff, they're encouraged to fight harder. And when he starts to flag a little bit, they kind of get a bit weaker and Amalek, Amalek prevails. Is it the lifting up of the magic stick of Moses? And people go, oh, it's the magic stick of Moses. Let's fight harder. That's a very, this worldly interpretation. Removing all the supernatural out of it. It's the fact that they see this big stick of Moses and they fight harder. Is that what it's about? Or is it the lifting of Moses' staff as a symbol of power is a picture of prayer. Moses was standing on that hill with his arms lifted, holding the staff of God in an attitude of prayer. And he was supported in that by Aaron and her. And it's about prayer, this passage. And so as he prays without ceasing, God acts on behalf of Israel. But as Moses gets a wee bit tired and has to have a little sit down and his arms flag, God stops acting and Amalek prevails. Is that what it's about? I don't really like either of those interpretations. Both of them give me a problem. One of the problems would be, if it's all down to man's effort in the valley, and it's just a matter of psychologically influencing man to try harder, that removes the power of God for me. It takes out the, the purpose of prayer. It takes out the reliance upon God's action. It's about manipulating man to make him believe he can win. And some people think that's what Christianity is or what prayer is. It's a manipulation of our minds to actually achieve things that we couldn't really achieve. So I don't like the only this worldly interpretation. Lift up the staff and everyone gets really excited and tries harder. But the other one I don't like either very much. Because it sounds like God is easily manipulated. And maybe he's a little bit capricious that if poor old man Moses is standing there holding his heavy staff and his arms get tired... God's going to say, oh, well, if you can't hold that staff up, I'm not going to help you out. That's not the God I know. It's not the God I follow. But if Moses' arms start to drop, God goes, well, you're not that serious about it. If you're not going to pray that much, I'm not going to act. You know, if you're not going to pray for 40 years for your child to come to Christ, I'm not going to act. 39 is not enough for me. That's not God. That's not the God we follow. So what is going on here? What is going on? See, the problem is... 
Both of these interpretations put our focus on the wrong thing. And I think this is the message for us. One interpretation puts our focus upon Moses' staff. We look at the staff of Moses. And you can imagine Israel would be pretty impressed, pretty overawed by the staff of Moses. I mean, he waves it over the, over the sea and the sea parts. And he whacks a rock and water comes out for hundreds of thousands of people. I mean, it's a pretty powerful piece of wood. You can imagine people kind of want to, in fear of touching Moses' staff. Or maybe some people want to go and steal Moses' staff because it's a power stick. You can see this staff in a, in a museum in Istanbul, coated in gold, apparently, next to Muhammad's cloak and David's tooth, I believe. Is that what it's about? Some icon? Some totem of God's power? I don't like that very much. Or, the reverse would be, the passage is all about prayer, focusing upon prayer, that my prayer is what we should be trusting in. We should be trusting in prayer. Or trust in the magic stick, trust in prayer. And both of those are focusing upon the wrong thing. We're not saved either by the staff of Moses. We're not saved by prayer. The action of prayer. The staff of Moses is a reminder of the power of God. Not of Moses. Not of his magic stick. Power of God. A reminder of God. A symbol of God's power. And prayer too. Prayer in to God. Trust in God. Prayer towards God. The emphasis is on God, not on the prayer. It's on God. Faith, the emphasis is on what you put your faith in. Not the fact you've got faith. It's what your faith is in. It's to whom you pray. And as Israel looks to the staff of God, they remember God has promised to give them victory. God has come through in the past and God will come through again. And based on knowledge and experience, their faith is strengthened, their effort is redoubled, and they see God come through victoriously. Both matter. If Moses had said, just sit around by the fires, lads, I'll go up there, wave my stick around, and Amalek will be destroyed, you don't need to do anything. It's all about the prayer. It wouldn't have worked. And if Amalek had said, Moses said, we need all the men we possibly can, I'll come down in the valley with my magic stick, and we'll sort out Amalek no problem. It wouldn't have worked. Both Moses' prayerful action and the Israelites' military action were necessary. And this, te- this tension continues for us to this day. Relying upon prayer or relying upon action? Which is it to be? So you're sick. Do you pray for healing or do you go to see the doctor? Which one is it? You are about to take some serious exams. You trust the Lord and pray really hard that you're going to pass. And you rely upon that. Or you work very hard and study very hard. Which is one you're going to rely on? Should you pray really hard for people to be converted? Or should you go and tell people about Jesus? Should you pray very, very hard that God would provide the money for the church or for tear fund or for mission so that his work could continue? Or should you adjust your own expenditure and outgoings so you have money to give? Should you exercise in prayer? Or should you exercise in action? Which is it to be? And in all those answers, you all know 
in all those questions are, you all know the answer. The answer is both. It's both. It's not either or. The founder of uh, OMF was a man called Hudson Taylor 150 years ago. And he said, I pray as if everything depends on the praying. And I work as if everything depends on the working. And that's the balance. I learned recently, he was quoting Augustine, who said, pray as if everything depends on God and work as if everything depends on you. You do both. You're sick, you pray and you go to the doctor. You've got exams, you work and study and you pray. You always do both. Moses prayed. Moses lifted high the symbol of God's power before Israel. But the power is not in Moses. The power is not in the staff. The power is not even in his prayer. The power is in God. Yahweh, the deliverer. Yahweh, the savior. The reminder of God's power strengthens the people's faith. Where do you look when your enemy comes in? Where do you look? This staff of God lifted up before the people should make us think of another piece of wood that was once lifted high on a hilltop a thousand five hundred years after Moses. This piece of wood bore the broken body of the Lord Jesus Christ sacrificed for you and for me. And where we're in this battle when we're facing trials when those attacks come, and they will come to every one of us. When they come, we are to lift our eyes and look to the cross. Not to the wood, to the emptiness of the cross, which reminds us, helps us remember the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus, of his victory for us, of our ultimate victory through him. That's where we look. We look to Jesus. That's where our trust should be. Our trust is not in our prayers. Our trust is not in our church attendance. Our trust is not in our bank balance or in our vicar or whatever it may be. Our trust is in Jesus alone. That's where we look. Whatever the world throws, we look to the cross. We look to Jesus. We fix our eyes upon the crucified Savior, the risen and exalted Savior, the one who promises us he'll never leave us, he'll never forsake us, the one who works for the good of all those that love him, the one who orders all things, the one who has allowed these things to happen that strike your life and promises to bring good from them. That's where we look. We look to Jesus. Now Moses was commanded at the end of the passage that we read in verse 14. The Lord says to Moses, write this on a scroll. It's the first time writing is ever mentioned in the Bible. Write this on a scroll as something to be remembered. Remember. Remember what God did. And then Moses built an altar. Another way in the Old Testament of remembering the faithfulness of God. And he calls the altar, Yahweh is my banner. The Lord is my banner. 
the banner of God, the standard under which we fight. The Lord is the one that we serve. The Lord is the one around whom we rally. He has our full allegiance. And I will look to him when the tempter comes. I will look to him when the crisis comes. I will look to him and I will remember this wonderful Savior who loves me. This wonderful deliverer who has all power to help me in this struggle. The one who promises that he is able to save to the uttermost all those who are being made holy. We turn our eyes and look to him. We were commanded to remember his death and resurrection. And we're going to share in the Lord's Supper together, which is, again, a way of remembering his broken body, his shed blood. Do this in remembrance of me, Jesus said. We look not to the bread and the wine, as if these were magic things that are going to help us. We look beyond the symbols. We look through the symbols and remember the death and resurrection of Yahweh our Deliverer, Yeshua, which would have been Jesus' name. Yeshua, the Lord my deliverer. Let's pray together.